If you would read with me, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 20, it says this, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is the word of the Lord. Last week, as we began this series on the Ten Commandments, we looked at the first commandment, which was to have no other gods before me. And in that particular passage, we learn that God was saying in that passage that he is to be the object of our worship, that he is to be the person of our worship, that there are no other gods except for him. And based on what we have seen God do in creation and what God has done for his people, then it only makes sense that he would be the only object of their worship of their lives, not just on what we do on Sunday morning, but all of life being that of worship. This second commandment is connected to the first, and it focuses in our attention that knowing that God is the object, but this passage specifically on how do we worship that God. The commentators who write on the Bible and the scholars would say this about the passages from the first commandment to the second commandment, is the first commandment we, we, we learn that we must worship the right God. The second commandment means this, that we must worship that right God rightly. Meaning this, that, that there is a way that, that you and I can worship the God of the Bible and it be wrong. So that's what we're going to address. That's what the Bible is going to address inside of this passage here today. And so as we're working through this series, uh, if you were here last week, you learned that the points, uh, this, the, the outline is going to be very similar as we go through each one of these because they ultimately all reveal something about that God that we're to worship. It also confronts us in something. It's speaking to something inside of our very lives. It's also going to show something about Jesus. It's going to show something about the incarnation of Jesus. And then lastly, it's going to give us some application. So if that helps you in taking notes, look at Revelation, Confrontation, Incarnation, and Application. So when we read this passage, and he tells us in this passage, don't make for yourself a carved image or anything likeness in that, uh, we learn several things about this God. We learn this. We learn that, that God is not created. We've seen that over and over again through Genesis and now through Exodus as well. That the God of the Bible isn't a figment of imagination. He is not created by man's hand. 
The God of the Bible is the one that has declared inside of Scripture that he is the great I am, which means that he is he has always been. He is be. He is being. He is the God of gods. He has always been. And so he has always been that it, it is foolish for you and I in our worship of him to then create something out of our own hand to equate to or to enhance our worship of an uncreated God. When we do that, ladies and gentlemen, it has a way of diminishing who God is, who the real God is. Now, if I was to throw out the term Egyptian to you or Egypt, uh, some of you are automatically thinking about a really bad song from the 80s. But the rest of us as well are thinking about what? Images. Statues, pyramids, right? You begin to have these images all of a sudden because especially in Egyptian religious culture and the Canaanites and, and historically even, even if you talk to modern day Buddhists or Hindus um, and things like that, what is surrounding a lot of their worship? Well, it is the worship of these images. These images, these icons are incorporated into their worship. They can automatically, if you go, say Vishnu, well, to these people, then they can automatically what? Dream up a picture of who that is. If you say Buddha is a part of, or worshiping through the ways of the Buddha, if you say Buddha, if you have been to a giant Chinese buffet, you've seen that dude, right? He's the big round, circle-headed, he, Kind of looks like me, round, ball-headed, big dude, right? And and people, what automatically when you think of these terms, you can create an image out of your own imagination of that, right? Or you can put a picture in front of you to enhance that. Now I'm going to go ahead and tell you because of everything that's happening today in the worship service, a lot of what's going to be taking place today is, is really a trailer. I love to watch good movies, and I am that person that gets there for the 22 minutes of trailers that is before every movie, because I want to see the trailers. If I miss the trailers, I actually feel like I didn't get my money's worth, all right? Today is a trailer for a Christmas sermon that I'm going to preach, okay? There's been lots of things that have been cut from this, so you got to really pay attention and really hang with me, but we will come back to this in the, in the month of December. But we see inside of this idea that in all of these other false religions out there, that they often are equated to this image, right? And God is holy, he is distinct, he is separate, and from the very beginning of establishing his people, he's saying this, do not create an image in my likeness to enhance your worship of me. That's what the pagans do. That's what sin, Satan, and death does. And I want to separate you from that. Because right now, if I was to say, all right, uh, draw a picture of the God of the Bible. How, how do you do that? And it's on purpose. The God of the Bible hasn't been created. We don't want to diminish any of his glory. He is the great I am. And so God established from the very beginning here is that, man, we, we need to make sure that we're not creating anything in his likeness and bowing down and worshiping it even as we worship the God of the Bible. Right? 
The second thing that we learn about this God in this passage of Scripture is that God says that he is a jealous God. He says that he's a jealous God. Now, preacher, what you talking about, right? I thought that we weren't supposed to be jealous. Well, this passage has caused lots of people, especially celebrities. If you remember a few years ago, um, Oprah kind of shared her testimony um, on television. And, and it was a passage that involved God saying that he was jealous that caused her to walk away from the faith because she couldn't imagine that as a human being, why an almighty, omniscient, all-powerful God would ever be jealous of Oprah. So she walked away from traditional Orthodox Christianity. But the thing is, is that, that Oprah doesn't really understand this passage. And she doesn't understand that this is the, some of the greatest news on the planet, is that our God is a jealous God. Now, to nerd out just a little about you, I don't know Hebrew, but my Hebrew scholars and, and lexicons and all things tell me that when this says this inside of the original Old Testament, it was written in Hebrew. And when it does that, it uses a specific word to declare that God is jealous. Nowhere else in the Bible does it use that same translation of the word for, to, to, to acquire that or to place that attribute on a human being. It is always placed on God. We're just limited in English. Go figure. Pair, pair, right? <laughs> there, there. It's really confusing. And so in the English translation, we throw the word jealous out there because in our understanding and rendering and reading and definition, it makes the most sense for us. But when God says and declares that in his attitude, in his very character and nature, that he is jealous, the Bible only attributes this type of jealousy to that everlasting, all-loving God. It is a good thing for him to be that. It has this idea of being a consuming fire filled with a burning zeal stirred by the action or strong emotion. This is coming from his passion and his love specifically for his people. And the best way that the Bible helps us to understand this and the way that for those of us who are married can understand this is to equate this idea of his burning jealousy, his burning desire for his people, like that of a husband and a wife. God will not share his bride with anything or anyone. He will not share his bride with anything or anyone. You have to understand that inside of this context. The reason for God's jealousy is because it's righteous jealousy. It's good jealousy. It's holy jealousy. There is such a thing that even you and I can experience that from some degree. Imagine that me and Pastor Justin go away on some trip for the church, and, and I'm away from my wife and kids, and, and I come back, and there's a young lady with me. And Laura's like, who is this? And I'm like, well, I'm going to church it up. This is Sister Margaret, and we met out at this conference, and she's awesome. She loves Jesus. She, she would be a great helpmate. I think I'm going to invite her into our marriage. I want you guys to know, three days later, y'all will be having a Kentucky funeral for me. 
is she, is Laura wrong for having that sort of jealousy? No, that is righteous. You better feel that. If you're sitting there right now and be like, I don't think what the big deal is. I let him in. Come on in, Sister Margaret, right? Then we need to have another conversation with our pastoral candidate, Brian Lewis. All right? He'll help, help you out with that. But there should be this angst. If you have ever had a friend, or maybe you've experienced, sadly, yourself, of ever being cheated on, you know exactly the type of jealousy that the Lord is talking about here. Now, he's not talking about a, a jealousy where it gives you permission to, you know, uh, go make a, a lifetime movie about what you did after you caught them. But if you have ever experienced the horrific nature of making a vow with someone, being in a covenant relationship with them, and them breaking that by being in a relationship with someone else, then you know the type of jealousy that God is, is alluding to here. He's speaking to. Again, they're trying to write in such a way that you and I can understand. I'm here to tell you, if, 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 if Sister Laura comes home with a friend, there's going to be righteous jealousy there, and just flat out murderous anger. God loves his bride. God loves his people so much that he, he, he will not share his bride with anyone else. It stirs him with a passion, a right passion. Why? Because his love is so much for his people. His jealousy is not indifferent. It's not passive. It's birthed and acted upon out of his love. When you read the book of Isaiah, you'll come across Isaiah chapter 54, verse 5, when it says, For your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. God demands, brothers and sisters, our allegiance. See, the Ten Commandments, again, is not about you and I working our way to heaven. We can't. If anything, the law shows us that what? We're going to break the law over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. Even when we're not trying to, we're often doing it with our affections and our motivations. The law reminds us and it establishes this idea of, man, who am I most loyal to? What does my heart and my actions reflect that I am most loyal to in the world? Because if we truly understand the God of the Bible, it only makes sense for you and I to have complete allegiance to that God and to nothing else. This is the beauty of what God is saying here. He demands our loyalty. Again, if he is God, he must demand this. If he ceases to demand you and I's allegiance and loyalty, then he ceases to be God. So in this passage that we just read about, you shall not make for yourself any carved image. We learned there's lots of things that had to come out, but that he's not created. He is the great I am. And secondly, that he is a righteous, jealous God. And that is good news for you and I. If we continue on, then he's going to speak in confronting us. He's going to confront us. 
in this, look at what he does. He tells us not to create anything out of our hands. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I am the Lord your God, is a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and to the fourth generations of those who hate me. But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Why does God establish this? He said in this scene throughout history, up even to this point, that what are the people he has created who have fallen into sin prone to do? We're prone to create graven images and to worship them. We see this over and over and over again inside the scripture. Here's the deal, ladies and gentlemen. Everybody who's gathered here, you either hate God or you love him and are completely loyal to him. There is no indifference with God. He is either who he says that he is or he is not. You either reflect this loyalty toward him or you will not. He, and he even says in this passage that there's going to be people that hate me and that there are people that love me. We either give our whole selves to God or you and I give our whole selves to something else. Later on in the book of Deuteronomy, God is and is still talking about the story with Exodus and the Israelites and Moses and all these sorts of things. And he says this in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 16. And the Lord said to Moses, behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. Then this people will rise up and whore after the foreign gods among them in the land that they were entering. And they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. Listen to the strong language of the Bible. Now, I'm not going to spend too much time on this morning because I just I simply don't have time to do it. But I could take you throughout the Old Testament and even some portions inside of the New Testament that really paints this picture that if we're in a relationship with God, that we have the tendency to use the biblical term here to become whores. If you have time today, go home and read the book of Ezekiel. It talks about it over and over and over again. If you know anything about the book inside the Old Testament of Hosea, it is this picture of this godly righteous man who ends up marrying a prostitute, takes her into his home, loves her, cares for her, gives her, her, her legitimate children, all of these sorts of things, loves, and then she disappears, only to be found by choice to be back into the sex slave industry. And Hosea goes to that market. He sees his wife giving herself as a prostitute to many. And he has to purchase his own wife and takes her home. Inside the Bible, this is a serious offense. That, that you and I are, are, again, prone to what? To give ourselves to many lovers. Now, I'm not just talking about an intimacy sense. I'm not just talking about in a relational sense, but I'm talking about a spiritual relational sense. That there is God, and all of our lives should be directed toward Him. But you and I are constantly fighting the drift. If you are breathing in this room right now, you are constantly fighting the drift to be distracted by something out there, some blessing that is out, some creation, 
created thing that is out there that we have taken that God has given us and to make it an ultimate thing above the God of the Bible. Anybody? That's what we're prone to do. Paul will talk about this in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, and we have a, a verse of this up here. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetedness, which is adultery. And this isn't an exhaustive list here. But it shows a general premise that, that you and I, that we won't walk into each other's houses, most of us, you won't walk into each other's houses and, and, and see a picture of the Buddha hanging there or Vishnu. You won't see an Egyptian, the god Ra, right? You won't see some, some, some man um, image and has the head of a hawk as a statue or coat hanger for you at your house. If you have a prayer room or a place where you pray, typically as, as followers of Jesus, you won't walk into that place and, and, and bow down to some sort of shrine dedicated to all of these sorts of things, right? Because, because as Christians, you know, we're, we're not supposed to have but only one God. We're not supposed to have these graven images that we worship as an, an experience and to influence our worship of the God of the Bible. you know what we will have? Again, nothing wrong with having a television. There's, there's nothing wrong with having a house. There's nothing wrong with having hobbies. There's nothing wrong necessarily with having a computer or an iPhone, social media. But, but let's be really honest. If we were to evaluate the last seven days of our lives, how much time was spent looking, participating in all of those sorts of things, and instead of being obedient to God, what is it showing us? It's showing that these are gods in our lives. They have strongholds in our lives. How many of us, before we even say hello to our spouse, if you're married, are looking on the phone? How many, how many ever get that thing from your iPhone that tells you how many hours you spent on the phone? Anybody? And you believe it's lied every time? I'm that guy. Ain't no way! Ain't no, I left an app open on my phone. That's what it was, right? You get into the endless cycle of looping through things. Yahoo, Google, social media, social media, Yahoo, Google, ESPN, 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 Twitter, 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 Facebook, Instagram, right? And it's this, this, this constant thing. What, what is it showing, man, is that you're, you're, you're drifting toward this. Like you, we have to have this. In Romans chapter 1, verse 18, look up here at the screen on this one as well. It says this, For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking. 
and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts and to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they have exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. See, friends, whatever you give your time, talent, and treasure to, that is what you worship. That is what you and I worship. Is that, man, we, we love to have this exchanging relationship. We know about God. We, we know about the God of the Bible. He is giving, the God of all creation has given us His very Word. He has given us the, the very created being, even in looking at each other as the image bearers of God. We see the diversity and the beauty that is at God's very hand. God gives us these great, wonderful things. But man, uh, you know, a relationship with a person of the opposite sex is an absolutely beautiful gift from God. And yet how many of us at some point in our lives have made that person a God? Money is a huge God in our lives, isn't it? And you don't have to be rich for money to be your God. Money is the God of really poor people too. What this passage, what this command confronts in us is that, man, we have all of these issues, all of these struggles that anything can be. And, and I believe that most of these small g gods that you and I begin to, to worship and enhance in our lives can be essentially laid down to these, and I can't go into all of them, but it's about our position. What do the people think about me at the company? What does my neighborhood think about me? What do my friends and family think about me? So, so our position and in, in our status inside of the culture around us becomes a God for us. Anybody not wear certain clothes? Like as a kid, Mama, I'm not wearing British Knights. And if you know what British Knights are, you old. I'm not wearing Jordash, Mama. I'm not wearing Jordan. You can't take me to Walmart. You better give me some guest jeans with that little diamond on the back, little triangle on the back pocket. Right? Why? Because it was about status. It was about position. I wanted to look good in front of certain people about certain things. This confronts people. Again, relationships. Friendships. Boyfriend. Girlfriend. Husband. Wife. You can even have a great marriage. And that person sitting next to you. Be your God. Parents, I know that this can be hard to believe, but your kids can be your gods. Easily, they can be your gods. Possessions, again, how much stuff can we get? Money would be included in that. How about pleasures? Pleasure. And that comes in a variety, you know, food, sex, drugs, uh, you know, alcohol abuse, 
entertainment, social media, video games, all all of these sorts of things. See, God is confronting this, and and he's saying, here's the deal. You you can't take these created things and elevate them above me. I am the creator. Many of these, again, are good gifts from me to you, but as soon as they become your God, you're controlled by them. Everything about you will be motivated to get these things. Man, that's why things like social media are so, uh, you know, so intoxicating is because literally there's been tons of studies about this. It's, it's a dopamine drop, right? It's the same thing as that when you do uh, an illegal drug and you get that hit, that buzz from marijuana or from a cigarette, whatever it may be, um, is that, man, you, you want it, all right? You want it again. That's why I love to eat is because there is this huge dopamine just drops down on me that it makes you numb for just a little while, right? Every time you get that like, dopamine. Every time you get that comment. I mean, we we live in a culture where you can take umpteen pictures of your own grill. For you a little older, that's your face, not what you cook meat on. That is a grill too, all right? See, there's the English for you. Grill and grill. There's a third grill. It's your teeth. There's also a grill on a vehicle. All right? But where, where it's acceptable for you to be the selfie queen or the selfie king. And we have filters to even make you and I look better. Like, I always choose the ones with hair. I know it's in there somewhere, and it just makes me feel better for just a moment. That's what it used to be like. It's a drug. Our culture says, go for it. Take it all in. We're the most pleasure-induced people ever and the most depressed. Why? Because God refuses to be in an open marriage. God refuses to share His throne with anything or anyone. He will not do it. He loves us that much. Quickly, the incarnation. So we've, we've looked at what does this say about God? What does this say about us? Well, what does this say about Jesus? Later on inside the New Testament, there's this book called Jeremiah. And personally, I love Jeremiah. He's known as the weeping prophet. Brothers got some problems like I do, all right? You call them Eeyores. I call them friends, right? And um, in that Jeremiah is called to be a preacher. Dude preaches for 30-something years, and guess what happens? Nothing. Like, we've had more success today. God's had more glory in working in our church family today by those two baptisms than Jeremiah had in 30-something years. And it wasn't like the dude was sitting on his camel just camping out all these days. 
brother's working sun up to sundown, and he's just like, why, God? Why did you call me to this and yet not move in your people? And in that, God speaks to Jeremiah, and he says this to Jeremiah. He, he, he says this in Jeremiah 31. He says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, and I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judea. Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So God is saying, I have a covenant with the Israelites, but guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to do something new with my people. It's coming in the future. My covenant, which they broke, the Israelites, although I was husband to do to them, declares the Lord. We see this in this passage that, that God is foretelling something that's going to happen in the future. I'm going to do something different. I'm going to fulfill all of this in the future. And that's what Christmas reminds us about every year. In about two weeks, our tree will be up. I know it. And I will, yes, ma'am. Here it is again. Lug that box down. But what does Christmas remind us of, though? It reminds us of the new covenant. It reminds us what is what is uh, what is it in the Gospel of Matthew that that God is is telling about the Jesus that is coming, right? And what's his name? Anybody remember? Emmanuel. What? God with us. I'm doing something different. I'm going to do something different. I'm going to fulfill all of this Old Testament law and all this stuff, and, and Jesus is coming. Paul will say about Jesus in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through 16, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For Him, by Him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. Who is Jesus? He is the image that you and I need. Hey, people, don't create images to worship me. But I'm coming in the flesh to be the image. Jesus, the image bearer of God. We have the personhood of God in the flesh. Y'all know me, I like to do drawings. I've been doing them in church since I was a little bit of a kid. Drawings. I was even known, I can still go to the grocery store right now and people come up to me that I do not know and go, you paint Jesus, don't you? Because literally in a worship service one time at another church, I painted Jesus while people were singing. All right? Drawings are cool. And, and, and the passage isn't saying here that we can't have pictures of Jesus even. I would not have a picture of God. Because I don't know what that would look like. And most pictures that we do have of Jesus actually aren't Middle Eastern dark-skinned men. So a lot of them even get it wrong. The passage is, isn't that we can't have pictures of Jesus 
but, but rather it's saying we can't worship these pictures. That's why when you come to a Protestant church that you don't see Jesus hanging on the crosses everywhere and little statues all over the place of, of saints and of Mary and all these sorts of things. Why? Because the, the focus is, is not on these created things that I can do with my hands or draw or to paint with in order to enhance my worship. No, we have been given the very greatest artistry in all creation in a very physical form and his name is Jesus as all that is God the Father as, as he comes in the flesh as Jesus comes in the flesh as Jesus gets off his throne in heaven and comes here Emmanuel with us the very presence of God is amongst his people we do not worship the painting of Jesus we get to worship Jesus this is a beautiful thing for us. In 1 John chapter 5, it says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ, He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves. From idols. And we are all prone to do these things. We don't need any of these other things. We need Jesus. So when Jesus shows up in the New Testament, the people of God are in Israel, they're in Jerusalem. But the Romans have overtaken it. See, throughout Israel's history, what happens is, is they obey God. And then they get into relationships with people who don't obey God. And what happens? There's typically a lot of scary stories of people dying. And likewise, God, in an act of punishment, will remove them from the promised land until they come back to him. Until they are, 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 are responsive in obeying him, right? And so when Jesus steps onto the scene, there are, there are Jesus people. He, Jesus lives in Israel, right? He is around Jerusalem all of his life, Galilee, all these different areas, all of his life. He is around these Jewish people. And yet there is these slave owners, the, this Roman government that is oppressing them and running throughout their city. And Jesus comes across different groups of people within Israel, right? Jewish people. Some of them are known as the, the Pharisees, right? These are, these are the guys and gals who, man, they obey the Ten Commandments. They obey all the laws inside the Old Testament. They obey even the rabbis' laws that have been added to the laws that we see in the, inside the Bible. Let's just be really, really frank. The, the Pharisees get a really bad rap, but they're all better people than you and I. And Jesus the Messiah shows up. The image of God shows up. And what did the Jewish people do? They reject him. They reject him. Upon further research, do you know why, though, that the Israelites' people, or by, by the time that this happens inside the book of Exodus to the time that we get the New Testament, again, they had this relationship, they break away from God, he brings them back, they're away, they come back, all, all of these sorts of things. But do you know why the Pharisees are so hardcore about you and the people 
obeying the laws? It was because they were fear in fear of being exiled again. They did not want to be taken away from the holy place, from the holy city. They had read the Old Testament. They've seen that it gets really scary when you're away from God. When He disciplines you like that, it gets really bad for your friends and family. And so the Pharisees are really legalistic about following the law. Why? Because they don't want God to punish them by giving them and sending them in exile again. Let's put it in, in ways that maybe you and I could understand a little bit better. Maybe you're sitting here today, and man, you've, you've said a prayer at some point. You ask Jesus, forgive you of all your sins. Maybe you even got baptized. Maybe you've been sitting here in, in this worship gathering here today. And you, man, you're singing songs, and when we pray, everybody, you bow your head, and, and, and man, you're a great neighbor, and you're a really nice person, and you know all, all of these sorts of things. But if we were to really have honest conversation, if you really have honest conversation even with yourself, of why you're a Christian and why you're here this morning. And if your response is, I don't want to go to hell, then you're equivalent to a Pharisee. Because here's why. It's that you're missing the point. point is, it's a relationship with Jesus. Not just so that you won't be exiled from him. The point of the gospel is that you and I get God. That we get Jesus. That we get to have a relationship with him. And yet so many, especially in the South, the cultural South, the spiritual cultural South, right? is like, man, I just don't want to go to hell. Well, anybody who you share the gospel with that has any logical mind, if all they're doing is saying, in a logical sense, would you like to go to this place? What are they going to say? No. <laughs> no. Like, how do I not go to the place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth and, like, worms and it burns and it stinks, all this sorts of stuff for all eternity? I mean, I don't even know how that works, but it sounds like either being at the DMV or Black Friday sale to me, and those are two places I never want to go. So what do I have to do in order that I never experience those places? Tell me. Okay. Yes, yes, yes. All right. We're good. So I never have to go there. That's what the Pharisees were believing. If they obey the law, they never have to be exiled again. So what are they wanting everybody to do? Well, we need grace and all the Vanderpools. We need you guys. We need you guys. Everybody, you've got to stay a part of the law. You've got to keep doing this. Do you not remember what happened to our people? He's going to exile us. He's going to cast us out, and really bad things are going to happen. So everybody be really, really good so God will be happy with us, and we won't get exiled. It's equivalent to a modern-day Christianity that just equates salvation to not going to hell. They had the right God, didn't they? The Israelites had the right God, but they worshipped him wrongly. And that's the point of the second commandment. 
is that it's possible for people to have the right God. To be false converted. It's possible for you to say, man, I love Jesus. And not know the Jesus of the Bible. And it's possible for you to be real nice and sweet. And not know Jesus. Man, it's possible that, that, that you can be growing up in a, a Christian home and have Christian parents and grandparents be from a long line of, of preachers and teachers and Bible school teachers and children's workers and all these sorts of things. Man, they claim to love Jesus and yet be lost. And what does this passage tell us that's coming to both of those groups of people? Hey, if you keep acting like your parents, if they're disobedient parents and they don't love me and they're not uh, completely loyal to me, then the, my wrath is coming upon them. Why? Because they hate me. But if you, fought, if you, if you, had, if you were lucky enough to have faithful parents or faithful great parents, this, is not, this passage is not about generational curses. You've got to get that out of your mind. The gospel is greater than what you believe to be is a generational curse. And if you don't have any idea what I'm talking about right there, just nod your head. If you do know what I'm saying, you should say amen right there. Because there's so much junk about generational curses that seems to trump the gospel. This passage is not about generational curses. He's like, man, if, you're, if your parents are disobedient and you choose to be disobedient, then guess what's going to happen? You're going to get the same outcome from God that they got. But if you love God and you love his people and you serve him out of not a way of working yourself to him, but out of his sign and symbol, man, I am dedicated to this God, the God of the Bible, to Jesus, then, then love and blessing is going to come to you. had the right God. They had so much right. They missed Jesus. This pastor I listened to, a podcast guy, I heard him say one time, he said, the devil just wants you to love whatever kind of Jesus makes you the most happy. And that is not the God of the Bible. So quickly, application. What does this passage tell us in application? Well, it helps the preacher out today because it tells you exactly. Do not bow. Do not serve created things. What's it talking about? Do, do not worship. Bowing is a posture, right? It's, it's bent. It's on bending knee. It's a posture of life. It's, it's not that we're just always crawling around on the ground, but no, it's that, that symbolically, if we were to look at your life as God was to look at your life, would, would it be a posture of being bent and bowing down to something other than God? Serving these things. See, we must fight the drift in both our personal lives and our corporate lives to needing to add something to Jesus. And to his word. See, brothers and sisters, we are overtly entertained, aren't we? We're overtly entertained. See, our temptation is, is that even when it comes to figuring out what's supposed to be happening on a Sunday morning, let's use a Sunday morning very quickly here, is that if we're just be figuring out what, what's supposed to happen on a Sunday morning, would you know? 
See, about 30, uh, 40 years ago, there was something that happened called the church growth movement. And in the church growth movement, there was this belief is that what happens here on a Sunday morning is primarily for lost people. Which is not true. Are lost people invited to come to the Sunday morning gathering? Absolutely. Do we hope and pray that they should hear the gospel? Absolutely. But did you know that the primarily purpose of the Sunday morning gathering is for the people of God, those whom are saved, to worship God rightly? But because of big business, right? Everything was getting bigger, and bigger is better, especially in the 80s, right? From your hair to your business. Everything was that way. And so there became these smart people, right, who kind of pastors, and they, they get in this room, and they're like, man, we got to get more people here. And so how do, how do we make what we do on a Sunday morning more palatable, more entertaining, so that more lost people would come to our gatherings? Became known as the seeker-sensitive movement. It's, it's hugely, widely entertaining. Even um, on my way here, I was looking at a specific place this morning. I'm not going to mention them because it, it's really irrelevant. Um, but I, I, I was looking into some of, the, some of this just even online to try to catch myself. Like, do people still do this sort of stuff? Because I, I, confessionally to you, I have many regrets as a pastor. Especially my early years of ministry. Because we were willing to do whatever it took to get more people to come to our gathering. Why? Because we believe that Jesus wasn't enough. Jesus needed an icon. Jesus needed something to enhance it. There was all this talk about how when you come to a Sunday morning gathering, you need to experience something. And so there was always this tension of what do we do that is more outlandish the last time to get people more excited. And so people didn't walk away going, man, Jesus is awesome. They walked away going, man, Pastor Eric is Gomer Pyle on Sunday morning up on a stage. That really happened. Pastor Eric makes a great church lady from Saturday Night Live. I dressed in drag on a Sunday morning gathering and no one got the shepherd's hook and pulled me off the stage. They let me do it three times in a row. Do you get what I'm saying? How this interferes and works into it? So it's like we need something. Oh man, we, we've got to have this, man. Okay, get out the pamphlet. What does your church have to offer us? Well, it's got to have this, it's got to have this, got to have this, got to have this, got to have this. I mean, I mean, I've been in a worship gathering. Where, remember this back in the, the 80s and 90s, the strength teams? Because that's what Jesus needs, is a grown man ripping a phone book in half to make you come to Jesus, brother. I heard Living on a Prayer by Bon Jovi. And it was done with excellence right before a man got up to preach. I sang Live Like You Were Dying from Tim McGraw on a Sunday morning wearing a cowboy shirt. So you're laughing because you're here. <laughs> Let's get real about this. 
they would only sing my song. I would really feel Jesus. Did you feel Jesus today? We can binge watch shows. Right? You watch a three-hour movie. I mean, even for those of you of readers, I'm a reader. My favorite books have pictures in them. As a kid, anybody do that? Go to the library. You got to choose a book. I'm just looking which one has the most pictures. Right? We'll do all those things. We'll, and if you like baseball, Lord help you to sit and watch that four-hour paint dry. But as soon as we walk here on 9.30 on Sunday morning, how much distraction do you have? Pastor Eric, I can watch a three-hour football game, but I don't understand why you can't finish in 20 minutes. Right? Somebody get up here praying. Like, oh, my gosh. I mean, I'm the preacher, and I'm going, oh, my gosh. Like, my ADD is like, oh, my gosh. Right? Please get this. Why? Man, we gotta lighten this thing up. We need some dancers. I mean, there, there, there are churches out there that have like pastors of choreography. And before we get the big head blasting, you know, big buildings and big budgets and all these sorts of things, we've got to ask ourselves some very serious questions. How do we worship Jesus rightly? We just absolutely being consumed by his word and then living that out. The Word of God. Faith come by seeing. You live in a world that wants to see. Show me the proof. And the Bible is calling you to hear. Hear the Word. And then one day your faith will be made. Is Jesus enough? Is he really enough? Not the show. Jesus. The image bearer of God. Do you know this Jesus? Does he sound like a stranger? If that's the case, I would beg, plead. But the Lord to work in your heart right now to humble you, to draw you to himself, to repent of your sin. And as we've seen from Noel and Ryan today, to profess that Jesus is Lord. He is my everything.